Jawan Psychology. This is actually our third class officially. Um, last time we talked about the defense mechanisms and we talked about Freud. And uh, I like talking about Freud because he has so many interesting ideas. And a lot of them boil down to some basic concepts that they have in common, which is the idea, like I said, that uh, the elements of ourselves that are unknown and unconscious are actually more than the elements that are conscious and so much of our behavior, our reactions, our feelings, our, uh, uh, the, the jokes we make, the things we remember, the things we forget, uh, the dreams we dream, the reactions we have to think, so much of it is, is affected by unconscious processes, things that we are not really aware of. And uh, we had another class of this last week and we went over some of the details and in the course of going over some of the details, there were some questions raised and I just want to make sure everybody was on the same page in terms of that because it's important that everyone uh, be able to follow when we talked about the, uh, the defense mechanism. So basically the defense mechanisms, we have this idea of writing, ladies, please put your phones away so I don't have to be the bad guy. Don't make me be the bad guy, please. Okay? So in the, uh, when we talk about the defense mechanisms, we're talking about how the personality is made up of different elements, different components, ego, id, superego. This is all the Freudian theory. And again, not everybody agrees with this. This is the Freudian theory. I happen to think there's a lot to learn from it and I happen to like it. Some people don't like it as much. Um, uh, we're going to see a new application of it today that I think you ladies will find really, really interesting. Uh, but just to review what we did last time. So we have the ego, the superego, and the id. The ego is basically the part of you that interfaces with reality, the part of you that is at least somewhat conscious of what's going on, your sense of this, what, you, what you want, your drives, your hopes, your, uh, you know, your ambitions, your plans, your thinking, all that happens in the ego. And then you have this id, which is the storehouse of all of these uh, desires and wishes and uh, Avot, we would call them in Hebrew, all of the, and all of these uh, uh, wants and needs that you have that are beneath the surface. And then you have the superego, which is the part of you that feels guilty about some of those, uh, some of the things that are bubbling up beneath the surface. And basically through the negotiation between these different agencies in your personality comes the person that you are. That's how Freud explains it. Now, we talked about the defense mechanisms and why are the defense mechanisms important. Because these are ways that the personality deals with unwanted feelings, okay? So, for example, we talked about denial, the most basic one, perhaps, right? You have rationalization, where you come up with a nifty explanation for why you're doing certain things, but really it is, it is hiding the true motivation. Now, again, in a defense mechanism, it's super important to remember that if you're just lying, that's not a defense mechanism. Right? If you're lying and you know you're lying, meaning you know you hate the person, but you're going to pretend that the reason you rejected their application was because of some rationalization that you gave. So then you're not really happy. That's not a defense mechanism. That's just that you don't want to tell the truth. You know that you hate the person or whatever. Right. That's not a defense mechanism. Defense mechanism is when you're not aware of the reason you're doing it. So we have uh, on our defense mechanism, we have rationalization. We have denial. We had projection, which is a very common one. People like to talk about projection being where you attribute to the other person what you, in fact, actually believe. You say, I know she hates me. Really, it's because you hate her. I know she's jealous of me. Really, you're jealous of her. I know she thinks this or that um, when really it's you. Um, that's called projection. And then, of course, there is what's uh, a little sophisticated term called reaction formation, which doesn't sound anything like what it actually is, which is basically where you experience the opposite feeling of what you truly feel. You might truly feel resentment or upsetness, but 
you uh, convince yourself that you're happy. You might really feel uh, jealousy, but you convince yourself that it doesn't bother you. Um, and you actually support the person who's do, who, who, would, who actually is making you jealous. Um, and so on. So in other words, when you do the reverse of what you actually believe. Now, some people had gotten confused between, let's say, um, a, uh, the, the idea of projection and the idea of reaction formation. Projection is where you're attributing to the other person what you actually believe. Okay, you think you know what they're thinking. Let's say, oh my God, everybody is looking at me because I'm having a bad hair day today, when really it's just because you're thinking about it. That's called a projection, right? Because you're attributing it to other people. When you are feeling the opposite of how you really feel, you bury that feeling of hatred or jealousy or whatever the feeling you didn't want to feel so deeply, right, that you actually are, uh, uh, feel the opposite consciously. That's called reaction formation. And then the one actually, it wasn't that that was confused with projection. It was... Uh, displacement that was confused with projection. Displacement is where you take out your feelings on someone or something else. And I gave an example, I think in the second class that I wanted to bring back to this class because I thought it was a good example. The example is, let's say you're dealing with somebody who's sick or older and they're really frustrated. Sometimes it can be frustrating to deal with people who are sick, they have a lot of demands, they're stressing you out, or someone who's older, they move slower, they're really frustrating you. You feel bad about getting annoyed at that person. Right? You feel bad. So what do you do? You end up taking it out on your kids, your friends, your siblings, your parents, and whoever you can get away, away with taking it out on. Right? That's called displacement. That's different than projection because in projection, you are attributing your own feeling to somebody else. In displacement, it's the same feeling. You're just directing it in a way that you can feel less guilty about it. You're able to handle it because instead of admitting, let's say, that you are really annoyed with this older person or the sick person, and it's wrong. How could you? How could you be angry and annoyed with a sick person? Is that nice? No, no, it's not the sick person. I'm angry with my dog. I kicked the dog when I came home. Right? That's the classic case that they give of the displacement. You take it out on the dog. Take it out on the uh, on whoever, on the spouse, on the family, because really, what's bothering you? Or like, let's say at work, you feel very frustrated, but you're very helpless at work, and you don't want to real. You don't want to admit that you're so helpless at work. You can't do anything about the frustrations at work. So what do you do in the in the place where you can do something about it, which is let's say a place where you have more influence? You take out those bad feelings. That was something that we talked about last time. Now, last. Uh, one point, right, it was projection that differed from this place that I want to mention. I made a note of it at the end of the class because somebody had asked that was a very good question. That sub, the last point I wanted to mention was, okay, so you have in you actually two points. One is the, something that Freud calls the pleasure principle versus the reality principle. And this is really what the struggle is. The desire to get what you want, whether it's right or wrong, and the sense of reality that, look, not everything I want is going to be good for me. There are going to be consequences. Either I'm going to feel bad about it or other things are going to happen to me as a result of pursuing just whatever I want. And that's called the reality principle. That's part of what kids have to learn, right? In the beginning, they just want, want, want everything. They have tantrums. They insist they want. Uh, the older you get, the less, I wouldn't say that you stop having tantrums. I would say the less tantrums you have, right? The less things you get super upset about not getting right away as old, the older you get because you mature, okay, so hopefully. Now, that's what's supposed to happen, okay? That's called the reality principle versus the pleasure principle. Pleasure is just, I want what I want and I want it now. Whether it's anger at somebody, you just want to wipe them off the face of the earth or you want to beat them up or it is a desire for some enjoyment that really maybe you shouldn't have or you can't have but you want it anyway, um, and so on and so forth. That's the pleasure principle operating versus the reality. Now, the last point I wanted to make that we mentioned last time that I think was important to mention in this class too was about sublimation. We talked about sublimation. That was the last of the defense mechanism. Sublimation is where you take a desire 
This is all what we talked about this last time. So anybody who was there, they heard this already. This is a review. Sublimation is where you take a feeling that wouldn't be so kosher and you sublimate it. You, you um, direct it to a purpose that's acceptable. And the example that, the, that is very often given is let's say a person likes blood and guts so they become a surgeon and they cut people open, right? Or the person, uh, the, the example I gave was a person loves the spotlight and loves uh, being a, at the center of attention, so they become an actor, actress, singer, or something like that. And now the question was, why is that bad? Why is it bad? You're taking, you're taking a, a desire that maybe isn't uh, the most noble desire and you're using it for something good, so what's wrong with that? So I was explaining last time, and I think this was the key point. It, there isn't anything wrong with that if you're aware of what you're doing. Meaning, what is, a defense mechanism is never when you know you say, I am using a defense mechanism right now. Then it's not a defense mechanism. Defense mechanism means you don't even realize what's going on. So if a person is so driven by the desire for attention that they build a whole career on getting attention and they don't even realize that's why they're doing it, then they're not really conscious of their own motivations. They're not really self-aware. They're lacking self-knowledge. That's the problem. It's not that the person is channeling a lower desire to a higher desire. That's something you're supposed to do. The, the Torah tells you, and even your Yetzirah, you're supposed to use to serve Hashem. You're always supposed to use every desire that you have. Find a way to make it useful in the service of Hashem. That's great. But you got to be aware that it's there. If you're not even aware that it's there, then what happens is, you, it not only will it drive you to choose a certain career, that's gonna, but it will also drive you to make other decisions that maybe are not so good. Because you're not aware of that desire. When you're aware of it, you can say, hey, I'm aware. I really like to be the center of attention. I really like the, I really like the spotlight. I really like that. So you know what? I'm, gonna make, I'm going to uh, make a career out of it. And I'm aware of that I'm doing that. So that's healthy. When you're not aware of it and it's happening in an unconscious level, so then that same desire can also do other things to you that you don't even realize. That's why it's useful to know. That's the difference between a sublimation as a, as a defense mechanism, meaning you don't even know what's really going on beneath the surface, versus making a good choice about how to channel your energy. Did you have a question? Yeah, I feel like, like in the moment, if you're displeasing your feelings, like, you're not coming from the correct place. So true, yeah. Right, like, that's like, true, that's true. You can be vaguely that. aware that you're in a bad mood. Yeah, Let's right. say that you had a okay, bad day so and you're in a bad mood. I had a bad day at school, yeah. and I come home and I'm yelling at my parents. Right. You can kind See, of realize that. that my bad You realize that you're like in a bad Some mood and you're, cha- and you're right. You, the, so sometimes you're just in a bad mood and you want to vent and you know you're in a bad mood from something else and you're venting, right? Yeah, yeah you're absolutely right, that can happen. And sometimes, and, and again, that wouldn't necessarily rise to the level of a defense mechanism, because usually when we're talking about defense mechanism, it means that you're not aware of that, the real cause, right? You're, you're distracting yourself, you're blinding yourself to the real cause. When you know the real cause and you're like, you know what, I had a bad day at work, I'm gonna go beat some people up just to make myself feel better, that's not actually a defense mechanism, that's maybe not a good choice, but, uh, but, but you're aware of the feeling. Ladies, please don't be on your phones because I don't wanna be always the policeman, okay? Now, so we're going to talk about something uh, that Freud also made a huge contribution to our understanding of, which is, there are really two more topics, basically, that we're going to talk about that Freud 
made a big contribution to, and then we're going to move to other psychologists so we get a nice overview of different theories. I don't want you to think that everything is Freud, Freud, Freud all the time, but there are two more things we're going to talk about. The one is about dreams, and the other one is about um, things that we do by accident and what they mean, okay? And maybe, maybe, I'm not sure, in the last class, I will teach you a method for becoming more self-aware, but I'm not sure if I'm going to do that. So I don't want to promise, because then I don't want to break a promise. Something, maybe, we'll see how it goes. Now, um, but there is a method that Freud basically discovered, invented, refined, that can help you become more aware of yourself, and it's a very easy method to use if you're uh, willing to use it. Yeah, but we're going to learn how to use it. It's very, it's a very powerful tool. Now, uh, what we're going to talk about today is dreams. And obviously, there's a big overlap, uh, meaning that, that Torah says a lot about dreams. And Freud was, in the secular world, probably the only person, the only psychologist, I would say, who really dealt with dreams. Dreams are sometimes neurologists who study the brain talk about dreaming, but one, the only psychologist to recognize that dreams are a source of knowledge about the person was Freud. And I think that he's, his contribution to the understanding of dreams is amazing for two reasons. It's amazing, number one, just because it gives us an insight into dreams. And you can learn to understand your own dreams, but we're definitely not going to have time to go into that in such a big class. That's something that takes a little bit more one-on-one. But if you, uh, uh, that's one thing. The other thing is the way that a lot of the ideas of Freud overlap with what the Chachamim thought. The Jew, meaning the Chachamim of the Gemara thought about the meaning of dreams. And I think it's fabulous and amazing. So let's just talk about, we're going to talk about dreams. And how do you say a dream in Hebrew? Everybody knows? Halom. Okay. Halom. And the, uh, Freud's famous book was called The Interpretation of Dreams. He considered the discovery of the meaning of dreams to be the biggest discovery of his career. To the point that actually the, the, the hotel he was staying, he was staying at like an inn when he discovered this, when he came up with the theory. He said, one day there's going to be a plaque on this inn that says on such and such date, wow. Sigmund Freud discovered that, and there is one. Right? right? He said, there's going to be a plaque that says it on this, you know, like it says George Washington slept here, you know, all those different different places. It's going to say it, and it does. Because he, that you can actually, I think, go like visit the place where he, I guess, real psychology nerds are not on that level, you know, that go on like uh, pilgrimages to uh, sites of, of, of famous psychologists. Maybe they go there. Um, but he, not, not really. It was like an upcoming, upcoming. His first major, major work that became a big hit was The Interpretation of Dreams. Um, it's an earlier work of his. It actually like was in the earlier stages of his thinking, but he considered it to be a huge breakthrough in understanding. And um, one of the things that he said was that much of what I say about dreams writers and poets and everything have known for centuries. He said, much of what I say about psychology, people have really understood intuitively, but without putting their finger on it and developing it into a theory. And so he considered this to be the biggest, biggest discovery. And it's a huge discovery because we know that chalomot play a huge role also in Judaism. Don't they? Because nivuah, we have prophecy that comes to a prophet in the form of a dream. And of course, we have the super famous stories of Who's the super famous story of dreams in the Torah? Yosef, of course. And we're going to get into that story together and we're going to find out that a lot of what was going on in the story of Yosef can be understood best by understanding 
actually some ideas that Freud gave. So what was Freud's basic idea? His basic idea about dreams. And then I'm going to show you how it connects and relates to the Torah's idea. His basic idea about dreams is he said, I'm going to revolutionize your idea of dreams. Up till my time, up till the time of Freud, everybody thought, wouldn't it be better if you didn't have dreams? Dreams disturb your sleep. If you didn't have dreams, you would sleep better. That's what people thought. They thought it's a disturbance to have dreams. He said, I suggest the opposite. Dreams are what preserve sleep. Meaning, whatever's going on in your mind in sleep is transformed into the dream. Instead of waking you up, you get to watch a movie. You go to sleep and you watch a movie. You're usually in it. You get to be the, one of the stars of the movie. Now, a lot of stuff in dreams doesn't make any bit of sense, but sometimes it does. Sometimes there's a storyline that's so good, you're like, hey, I wish I could go back to sleep and continue that storyline because it was like uh, pretty cool. Right? Other times it could be scary. Other times it could be just nonsense and you have no idea what you're seeing. But basically what Freud said was, dreams are the product of what's going on in your mind transformed into a, uh, a medium that you, can, uh, that you can basically accept. Now, what does that mean? He said, at the core of every dream is a wish or a desire that you have a conflict about, okay? So there's a desire or a wish. And he said, every wish, every dream is what he called a wish fulfillment, meaning in some way or another, you're fulfilling the wish. You don't realize it. Because when you watch the dream, it's like, what the heck is going on in here? It doesn't make any sense. But your wish is being cloaked in the form of the dream. The dream is really expressing feelings, emotions, desires that you have inside of you. Usually, there is always in a dream, by the way, and I'll give you this as a homework, okay? There is always in a dream what Freud liked to call, now remember, okay, so first we're gonna say wish fulfillment is what he said every dream is. One day I'll tell you why I have handwriting that looks like this. It's another story. Anyway, the, uh, the uh, Freud said there's something called the day's residue. Okay? Day's residue. Now, what is a day's residue? And I'm going to show you the Gemara says this. The Gemara actually says this. Now, Freud never learned Gemara in his life as far as I know. But Gemara says the same thing. Every dream has a day's residue. What does a day's residue mean? It said there's something in that dream that is something that you saw or thought or heard during the previous day. It is always true 100% of the time. I can guarantee you as somebody who analyzed a lot of dreams, okay? Um, one, there is all, not necessarily. You will see something in the dream that, hey, that reminds me of that thing I saw yesterday, that place I was yesterday, that person yesterday. Always, every single time there's a day's resident. What do you have a dream? From the okay. day from the immediately previous day. Now that doesn't mean that the immediately previous day is connected to the deeper meaning of the dream. But, meaning, it might not be that the immediate meaning, that the deeper meaning of the dream is directly connected to, let's say, you saw a squirrel running by and then you had a squirrel in your dream, but you'll remember, oh my God, I saw a squirrel running by me on the, uh, on the street yesterday and there was a squirrel in my dream. The squirrel somehow, through a connection of associations, will go back to some deeper level of meaning of whatever your wish is, desire, fear, 
concerns, whatever it is that's going on on the unconscious level that's expressing itself in the form of this dream, and it gives satisfaction to your unconscious mind because your unconscious mind is like, hey, I got a lot of stuff going on in here, and the ego doesn't let it get out. It keeps telling me I'm unrealistic to fantasize that I can steal my friend's boyfriend away. But I really want to run away with him. I'm just making it up. You know, Whatever it is that your ego is telling your desires that they, that they can't express. I, my, my desire is that I want to kill this person that I really don't like them. Uh, but in the dream, in some kind of a distorted way, that dream can represent to you as if you did that. Okay. Now, when you see the dream itself, it won't really say that. You have to learn how to interpret a dream. But that's what the dream is doing, meaning what you see in the dream and what the dream is doing for your psyche deep beneath the surface is not the same thing. Right? That's the amazing thing. So he called it the manifest content of the dream. You don't have to know all these technical things, okay? Even in college, you know, I don't remember if we did this in undergraduate school, but the manifest content of the dream means what you actually see. The latent content of the dream is what's underneath the surface, okay? That you, might, you would never know if you didn't analyze the dream. The manifest content you would know, and in the manifest content you'll always see some signal of something that happened that day. And I'm going to show you, there's a story in the Gemara that says exactly that. Okay, but um, the latent content of the dream is something, that's the deeper level. Unless you analyze the dream and really un- unlock the meaning of the dream, you wouldn't get to that. But that's what the dream is doing for your psyche deep down. Because when you go to sleep and your mind is no longer working normally, right? Your ego functions, your, your executive functions of your mind, they're not working at the nighttime because they're at rest. So now, all that stuff that you're pushing down and holding down all day long is starting to bubble up. Normally, that would disturb your sleep, right? But instead, the dream comes and says, no, 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 stay asleep. I will allow you to play and enjoy whatever it is you want to feel and whatever it is you want to think and whatever it is you want to fantasize about in the form of this amazing movie that I'm going to show you. Okay? Now, where do we see? How can you tell that even in common, we have an intuitive sense that dreams are wishes. You know why? Because when somebody says they want to do something that sounds unrealistic, what do you in say? Your in your dreams. You're never, gonna, you're never gonna do that. And kids that report dreams have very simple dreams. I got an ice cream with, uh, with you know, and I ate the ice cream and then I had more ice cream and I played with my friend. It's like the most basic thing that they would want to do. It's just express what they want to do. Because they don't have complicated psychological baggage yet. So they just dream straight what they wish they could do. Okay, but we say, in your dreams, it's my dream. It's the man of my dreams. It's the girl of my dreams. Where you Dream means what you wish, what you hope. We know that intuitively, right? Now, and that was one of the things Freud said. He said, everybody realizes that. Now, the amazing, amazing thing is that the Chachamim, now, let's segue for one second into the Torah idea of dreams. Now, we know that the Torah recognizes two kinds of dreams. Regular, ordinary dreams... And then like prophetic dreams, right? So let's go back to what Freud's... Nivu'ah, like a Navi has a prophet, has a dream. And that, in that dream, he doesn't just see what he wants to be true. He's getting like a message from Hashem, right? So that's not something to take... That's not like just whatever's coming out of his psychological baggage. That's like something coming from Hashem. So how does that work? So let's go back to... Really, Freud gives us the tools to understand it. Because Freud is telling you that when your senses are shut off because you're not awake, right? And you're, and you're thinking and calculating and planning parts of your mind are, are, are shut off because you're sleeping. So what happens is your imagination can run free. 
right? Your imagination can run free. Now, what is going to take control of that imagination is really the question. What is going to take control of that imagination? So in most people, what takes control of the imagination and uses it. Right now, if you want to imagine something, what do you usually have to do? Close your eyes. Because as long as there's sensory information coming from the outside, you can't fully picture something in your imagination. Maybe a little bit, but not fully. Well, I could daydream. Yeah, but not... You, you have to zone out. Even if, you, even if you are daydreaming, you zone out what you're seeing around you, right? So you, you can't be taking in the, the outer world and also be daydreaming because you're using your imagination for something else. So when you're in a dream, your imagination is free from the senses and from all this other stuff and from all... So what's going to happen? Either you're going to dream what's coming from deeper inside your own emotional, mental world or you're going to dream something that's coming from something higher than yourself. Right? So if it's a nevuah, if it's a prophecy... The imagination being free is what allows Hashem to communicate to a Navi through the imagination. And that's why the Rambam actually, Maimonides we're talking about, who is the one rabbi of all the rabbis who spoke the most about how prophecy and nebuah works, he says every Navi needs to hear from Hashem through a dream. It's always through a dream and he has to be asleep. He has to be out of it. He can't be awake, most Navi'im. Only Moshe Rabbeinu could do that. Most of them have to be in a trance or they have to be asleep. Because their imagination is the way Hashem speaks to them. Even if they hear a voice from Hashem, it's coming through their imagination. If they see a vision, it's coming through their imagination. This is what the Rambam says. This is basically the same idea of what Freud's saying, just the other flipping, meaning your imagination is free. What is it going to show you? I'll give you an example of something from a secular standpoint that isn't psychological and isn't nivuah. There is... There are mathematicians who have dreamt the solution, solution to math problems. Okay, why would that happen? Because we're thinking about it all day. You did? Wow, interesting. What? I don't know French. Yeah, me neither. What? We're thinking about it all day. It's, right, it's in their mind, and normally they couldn't make the breakthrough when, they're, when they were distracted by everything going on in the world around them. As soon as they went to sleep and their mind was free, all of a sudden, boom, they were able to get to the answer. There's another famous thing from the world of music. There's something called, if you, I don't know if anybody here is a classical music person, but there's something called, the, I'm actually a multi, like very, very eclectic music person. Like I like all kinds of music, except Kanye. Because he's an anti-Semite. Everything, everyone else, right? Now, what the, I, but there's a, there is a piece of music called the Devil's Trill Sonata. It's a, it's, a, it's a very difficult, extremely difficult to play violin piece. The composer actually dreamt it. He said he went to sleep and he had a dream that the devil came to him. Obviously, he was Christian, right? The devil came, took a violin and played this crazy thing. He immediately woke up and tried to write down the music. He's like, what I wrote down wasn't even as good as what the devil did in the dream. It wasn't as good, right? But he said, but meaning sometimes really gifted people, when their imaginations are free, they can have amazing insights into things. And that's... That's because they're more cerebral. A person who's more emotional is not so cerebral, is not such a brainiac. So what's going to come out in their dream is stuff from the lower parts of them, meaning from, the, from their feelings, emotions, desires, and so on, like regular human stuff. And the, the intellect or the musical gift can express itself in a person who's really, really gifted, not all the time, once in a while. Just like a Navi doesn't have prophecy every single night. Once in a while, they have a prophecy. Most of the time, they just have regular dreams like the rest of the, you know, like an ordinary person. Yes? Um, I'm not sure if I'm 
imagination? Ah, so that, hold on to that thought. That's one of the big questions. How do we know when a, when a prophecy or a dream is really, when a dream is a prophecy and when a dream is just the expression of the person's inner life, right? How do you know? How can we know? That, we how, right, how can we know? How can the Navi know? Okay, so this is one of the big questions in Nevoah. One of the assumptions is that a Navi can tell. But even in Navi's dream, okay, there could be aspects that are not, that are coming from the psych- psychological makeup of the Navi. I'm going to give you, just because you asked that question, even though I was very tempted to tell you the stories from the, from the rabbis about dreams, because they're so close to Freud's ideas, we're not going to be able to get to all of it today, I realize it's getting a little late. So I'm going to jump to a story and we'll go back to those rabbi stuff uh, next time. Okay? The rab- There's a lot of stuff in Masachet Bachot on dreams and all the ideas of dreams of Freud are basically uh, in there, in whole or in part. It's amazing that they have this, this understanding thousands of years ahead of time. Now, what is the what is a story? The story when you think of dreams in the Torah, of course you think of Yosef. I want to use that example as an example to illustrate to you ladies. I hope you're with me. This is good stuff. As an example of where you can have a dream that could be interpreted one of two ways. Let's take the dream of Yosef. What was the dream of Yosef? Yeah, two. Right? No, that was the Parola's dream. That was later. What did Yosef himself? No, that's Yaakov. That's Yaakov. That's his dad. That's the paro. That's the paro. Wheat. Wheat. First one was the wheat. Oh, the pigs. First one was the wheat. No, you're thinking of paro. Paro. That's later. Yosef's own dreams that he told his brothers. That he told his brothers. I mean, right? His first one was, I saw us all binding sheaves of grain in the field, and all of a sudden, my bundle rose up, and uh, and all of your bundles were bowing to it. And then he had another dream that the sun and the moon and 11 stars, interesting number because that's exactly the number of brothers he had, are all bowing to me. Okay? That was Paro's dream that he interpreted. These were his dreams. Now, if you are the brothers of Yosef, what did the brothers of Yosef say when they heard the first dream? Do you remember? You're going to rule over us? You think you're going to rule over us? You're going to be in charge of us and we're all going to bow to you. So what does that mean that they understood as the meaning of the dream? Think, that what? That what, is it, what does a dream mean then? They don't think it's really going to happen. What do they think it's showing about Yosef? What he wants. They're saying this is a fantasy dream, meaning that was the machloket, if you will, the disagreement between Yosef and his brothers. Yosef is like, look, I had this dream, it's a prophecy. They said, no, that dream is your wish fantasy that you want to rule over us. What do you mean it's a, right? The dream is that the sun, the moon, and the stars are bowing to me. It was the second dream that Yosef had. Okay, now what is, so Yosef is saying this dream is coming from Hakadosh Baruch Hu. It's coming from Hashem. Nebuah, prophecy. What is what is the, what are the brothers saying? No, this is a regular dream, and we know what dreams are. Dreams are wish fulfillments. You're fantasizing. You want to rule over us. You're an egomaniac. That's what the brothers thought. 
That's why they wanted to kill him, because they said, you want to destroy this family and make us all your slaves? You're a nutcase. He says, no, no, no. This is a prophetic dream. The second dream has in it something really remarkable. Because Yosef, in the first dream, he dreams of the sheaves of green bowing to his sheave of green. Right, his bundle. In the second one, he sees the sun, the moon, and the stars bowing to him. What do the 11 stars represent in the dream? It's very obvious what they represent, right? The 11 brothers. What does the sun must represent? Even though they're bound to him, his dad, right? What does the moon represent? His mom. What's the only problem with that scenario, ladies? Well, his father does bow to him, Matt, because he's like, the mom is dead already. She died when Benjamin was born, right? So if the mom has already passed away, it's not possible for her to bow to him. So what do the brothers say? Here's the proof that this is just a wish fulfillment fantasy of Yosef. Because at the end of the day, he wishes his mom were still alive, like anybody would normally wish that their mother was still alive. And because he's wishing and fantasizing about his own, he's wishing and fantasizing that he would be the leader of all of us and we all bow to him. And he's also wishing and fantasizing that his mom is still alive. What's the proof, ladies? What's the proof that the dream is not really based in reality? Because his mom wouldn't really be able to do that. So they're pointing that, and even his father says, Yaakov says, are you saying that I and your mother and your brothers will bow to you? That's what Yaakov, the father, says to Yosef. How can you say that I and your mother and brothers will bow to you? Why does he say that? Because his mother is not even alive. Forget about the fact that it sounds egotistical. His mother's not alive. And what do we dream about? We dream about the things we want. So there are two things you want, Yosef. We can be your psychologist, they're saying. We can see there's two things you want. One is you want your mommy back, which is natural for somebody who lost their mommy when they were little. And you also want to be a ruler over all of us. Okay, guys, come on. Focus, focus. Okay? That's the two... Those are the two dreams that you're dreaming. It has nothing to do with reality. What does Yosef claim? This is a prophetic dream. What do you learn from this? The rabbis say something fabulous about this, and I think it's really important. They say you see from this that even a prophetic dream, because in the end, Yosef was right. It was a prophecy, wasn't it? So in the end, you see even a prophecy can have elements in it that are not real. Because obviously his mother did not bow to him. So even within, because a Navi is also a human being, ladies, and a Navi also has uh, psychological desires and needs and emotions like everybody else, they also will see, even in their prophetic dream, some aspects that are not based in reality. He was convinced that was a prophecy because he, he said to him, he did not sense in himself this ego uh, uh, thing. He thought that it was really coming from Hashem. They thought, this is just your own dreams and, and fantasies that you're telling us, trying to convince us to bow to you. And the proof that it's just your own wish and fantasies that your mom is alive in the dream and your mom's not alive in real life. That's what they said to him. So that was the machloket, if you will, between Yosef and the brothers. What kind of a dream was it? But you see from this 
that even the Avot, meaning going back all the way to Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov's time, they understood what a baseline dream is. A baseline dream, in one way or another, is an expression of who you are, what you want, what you fantasize about, what you desire, maybe what you fear and what you worry about, but definitely it's coming from within you. And that's why they accused him of just telling them a dream that was what he wanted to be true and wasn't what was really true. But the amazing thing that the rabbis say is they meet them halfway. They say, you know what? They were right about one thing. Because even in the prophecy of a prophet, even in the, the, the vision of a prophet, there could be ele- elements that are not part of the main message that are coming from the psychology of the prophet. In this case of Yosef, that we could understand as a young man lost his mom and really wished she could be back as totally normal and totally natural to wish that, right? Now, that's, that's the, the way that, the, uh, that we can see from Tanakh even that they had this understanding. But there are other examples of it and, um, and the rabbis, and we're going to not be able to touch on all of it or even only a little of it today, but there are amazing, like the, the Chazal say, Amar Rav Chizda, there's never a dream that's fully, completely true. There's always elements in the dream that are coming from the personality of the person who dreams it, even in the person who is a prophet. And they actually say an amazing thing. And it says, It's going back to Rabbi just like you never have grain without some straw, there's never a dream without some nonsense in it. Okay? Meaning, even in a prophetic dream. And it says, and another really, really interesting thing, I want to get to their discussion about the day's residue and, the sim- and how you should react to your dreams, how you should relate to it. But one of the things they say is that a, a good person will have bad dreams. Because they trigger the person to reflect. A bad person, Hashem will, a good person, Hashem will send them bad dreams because it will trigger the person to reflect and why am I having this dream? What's going on inside of me? Right? If they're wise enough to be able to understand their dream, they can learn something about what's going on inside them from the dream. If you just have good dreams, you just enjoy the dream and you move on with the day and you feel good. If you have a dream that bothers you a little bit, you have two, reco- two paths. One is to say, I want to understand it. The other one is to say, it makes me nervous and scared and uh, I want to just nullify the dream. So we have like a thing, we have an idea, we're going to get into it next time and see how it relates to uh, psychological understanding of dreams. That a dream can be a gateway to understand yourself. That's why the Chazal said a bad dream is good for a good person. Because if they reflect on it, they can learn to understand themselves. A good dream, you just usually say, well, I feel good about it. I don't need to reflect on it. I don't need to worry about it. Okay? But they also say in here, a dream, uh, that, that basically a dream, uh, number, also that it reflects things that you experienced that day. And they also say that a dream, sometimes how a dream affects you will depend on how you interpret and relate to it and how you react to it. And how a dream can have an effect on you. If you don't understand the dream and it just bothers you, or you don't understand the dream and it just makes you feel good, it can have an effect even on the surface level, right? Sometimes you can have a bad dream and you wake up in a bad mood. Sometimes you have a good dream, it could leave you in a good mood without even understanding the meaning of the dream. So we're going to go a little bit into more in the next class.
some of the statements of the rabbis about dreams, see how it interfaces and interacts and connects to, and some stories about dreams which are pretty cool from the Gemara, see how they connect to some of the ideas of dreams that we talked about today in, uh, in, from a psychological perspective and how these two realms really overlap. It's really amazing stuff. And then maybe we'll talk a little bit about what you can do with your own dreams if you want to understand them a little bit better. Okay? Exactly. But sometimes they do even without knowing the meaning. 